Hey there, this is Matt. Uh, today I talked with Alexander Hrasimienka. Alexander is a professor at the University of Westminster in the United Kingdom. We talked about social media and political activism in Belarus and kind of Americans' perceptions of Belarus and how they might be correct and incorrect. I have one man ruling 25 years. I think I went to the very first grade, the very first year of my school when he became president. So now I went through many different degrees and finished uh-huh. several universities. He's still president and uh, it doesn't look like he's, he's going to live soon. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, Alexander, welcome to the program. So, Alexander, you're from Belarus, and I think a lot of people have minimal, don't have a lot of contact with people from Belarus, and there's certainly a lot of kind of ideas and stereotypes, and there's this perception of this man who's the head of the country who proudly calls himself the last dictator of Europe, but I think that most Americans really don't know a thing about Belarus. So I think it would be really interesting for our listeners if you just kind of told us, you know, what it was like for you growing up in Belarus. And then I think I'm sure I'll have plenty of questions (laughs) related to that. Indeed, I don't think that Belarus is that much featured (laughs) in global news in most of the countries. Normally people don't hear much about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people suggest that it's because not many things are happening in Belarus, <laughs> right? You have one man ruling for 25 years. Uh, I think uh, I think I went to the very first grade, the very first year of my school when he became president. So now I went through many different degrees and finished uh-huh. several universities. He's still president and uh, it doesn't look like he's is going to live soon. Uh-huh. So indeed, maybe for that same reason, it's very often called the last dictatorship of Europe, the phrase coined by the US administration uh-huh. in the middle of previous decade. Uh-huh. And it's somehow been rooted in the history and image of this country. Though perhaps some people would just suggest that it's not uh, the last dictatorship of Europe anymore. Uh-huh. Perhaps there are a bit at least another one or few of them depends on yeah. what you define as Europe. Europe, right. Yeah, so, but still people people refer to it as the last image. Yeah, and the other image that sticks into my mind is seeing on the news where Lukashenko had brought his like 13 or 14 year old son to the United Nations General Assembly and was, and was sitting with him and there was this kind of, seemed like this hint that he was like being groomed as 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 a successor and it was very funny to see this child at the UN General Assembly representing um um, his country and we we were talking a little bit about off air like how you know how are you know young people whether it's starting in school but then in in university how are they taught about I guess it's called the ideology of of Belarusia and and just kind of the political system of Belarus. How, how is it talked about by the government and how are people taught about it? Yeah, I think, uh, mm, well, indeed about this, this song, he actually has not one, but three. So he has several options in terms, ah. of the, in terms of the future dynasty if he wishes to establish one upon, uh, upon his death. Uh, but many people suggest that, yes, he's kind of preparing his youngest son for this position, though he's very young now. And we don't see how he can uh, become uh, 
take his position very soon, uh, though he has two others. Um, when it comes to education, I think uh, the Belarusian state, this, the regime had few issues, few problems with understanding what is it in general, what, what is sort of the idea behind it, what drives it. And so they came up with sort of um, theory that they describe as ideology of the Belarusian state. And uh, this theory being turned into an education course that is compulsory across all the universities of the country. At secondary schools, uh, so within the secondary education, uh, there are a number of different courses that have been also that are compulsory. And I would say the main element of them is the history of the Second World War. It seems this is to be the period where the regime sees its main roots. So essentially for them, for many of those people who established the theory of ideology of Belarusian state, that's where Belarus started during the Second World War, apparently. And one of the results of this view is that the Independence Day of Belarus is celebrated just one day before US Day, uh, before US Independence Day. And it, this is the day when the capital of Belarus was liberated by the Soviet army uh, from, from the Nazi army. So essentially, this event doesn't have much to do with independence of Belarus, but yeah. still celebrated. Wow, unbelievable. But what about Belarus, Belarusian language? Right? I mean, it is its own language. I know that there's very few speakers of it, but there is, for example, Radio Svoboda in Belarus, in Belarusian language. And so obviously, well, the, if the language is this older, uh, ancient, really, thing, then how how does history start at 1945? Well, I'm just one of those, as you say, few people who speak Belarusian uh, uh, normally in their everyday life. And indeed, I would say, based on my experience, it's not it's not that easy to be a Belarusian speaker in Belarus. Uh -huh. uh, for instance, as a student, uh, when I was going to university in, in Minsk, I would say I experienced some issues with discrimination as someone who was speaking Belarusian language at university, because many, some, some teachers would see it as a, as a sort of, um, uh, something that demonstrates and, uh, openly shows your political opinion mm -hmm. because many people associate uh, speaking Belarusian language with sort of anti-regime views, for instance. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's not true. It, mm -hmm. It's not followed across all population. But. Just for context, when did Belarus switch using mostly Belarusian language to Russian language? Was Russian always present in the country to some extent, mm -hmm. or, um, or did this was this imposed during the Soviet times? Yeah, mostly. Well, it happened as it uh, happened across almost all Soviet Union countries with the with industrialization when people moved from villages to cities to work for factories, to work across large enterprises. Uh, that's when the process of switching happened. So it mm -hmm. mostly started following those events of the Second World War mm -hmm. and proceeded uh, through the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. So I would say that uh, my parents, they were born and raised as Belarusian speakers, but in order to 
do the career in the towns and cities. They had to learn Russian. There is no higher education in Belarusian, mm-hmm. for instance. So they had to learn Russian. They moved to cities. And to be successful, they should speak Russian. And that's how the Spartans remained across this generation and further generations. Mm-hmm. How has that changed post-Soviet times? Is Russian still a major language in the country or is there an effort to push Belarusian? Uh, it was uh, uh, immediately when Belarus got independence from Soviet Union. It was the same time as Ukraine, as Lithuania and so on. Mm-hmm. The language policy was very similar to Ukrainian and essentially the state of languages was similar. But um, since 1994, when the pres- current president was elected, the policy was changed and he changed the policy perhaps. So he was part of that camp that was very much pro-Russian language, pro-Russian culture. Mm-hmm. Many people would see, would say that he sees himself as a Russian and he always, he often says it. Lukashenko says that I'm a Russian person mm-hmm. and we would not expect from a Russian person to speak Belarusian right and he never does. And this is perhaps one of the reasons why I would say um, there is no very much progress with the, the use of Belarusian, which is kind of, it's, it's quite a low level uh, in terms of the use across the public space in Washington. And, and that includes in, in like, you know, rural schools, is all the instruction in Russian, not Belarusian? If you take the absolute number of schools, about 30% of them, 25-30% are still in Belarusian language, mm-hmm. so Belarusian language schools. But most of them are located indeed in rural areas. Yeah, yeah. And normally those schools are smaller and the absolute proportion of children that have been educated yeah. in Belarusian is very small. In towns, in larger cities, there could be just few dozens, few dozens of school children that uh, are educated in, in this language. And so what do kind of young Belarusians think about their country? Are they satisfied with things? Are they comfortable? Um, there's there's some contradictory polling that I was looking at that says that, you know, the number of Belarusians who are kind of confident in the future is higher than in Ukraine or in Russia. Mm. But at the same time, mm. there's a higher percentage of Belarusians who want to have permanent residence abroad than in Russia and Ukraine. And that just seems so contradictory to me. Do you have any idea kind of how that makes sense or just kind of what what, what do you think about that? Well, uh, it's hard to say. First of all, to be honest, I don't really trust much uh, any polling done in Belarus as well as in other authoritarian states, uh-huh. any kind of polling. When people ask especially political questions, uh-huh. they tend to self-censor themselves. This, this is, there is research across, for instance, China and other countries, similar authoritarian states, let's right. say. People, people tend to uh, answer differently from what they think. At the same time, yeah, perhaps I think uh, there, were, there were different pollings and uh, all of them suggest that about 50-60% of Belarusians are thinking of leaving the country, so emigrating somewhere, whatever it's possible. And some people say that there are up to 700,000 uh, Belarus citizens who live abroad, so it's about uh, about 8% population, up to 8%. And maybe in 10. Uh-huh. And, you know, young, young people do kind of, what is young Belarusians' people engagement with politics, do they vote? Yeah. <laughs> do they have the opportunities to participate in yeah. any way? And kind of, do they um, are they optimistic about being able to um, kind of 
keep, you know, put Belo Belarusia on a, on a good path? Well, I think, um, well, first of all, there are no elections, uh, no pre and prior elections. There is, there is something, some, some sort of procedure of elections similar to what is happening, I don't know, in Turkmenistan or North Korea, but no one counts the vote. So essentially it makes no sense whether you vote or not. Yana people, uh, the current generation of Yana people is a bit different from previous generations of young people who grew during the previous decades of dictatorship. So in, in 90s and uh, maybe from 2001 to 2006, there was quite strong movement of young people who wanted to introduce changes. Uh, and all of those movements, there were several, they failed, many people left. And it seems like these days, it doesn't look that younger generation is very much engaged in politics and very much interested in changes, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's anything that could change that? Like anything that could kind of cause young people to take more of an interest in so it? So you see, interestingly, these days, as, as we see across many other countries, younger people are less interested in, say, those problematics that that uh, were in minds of uh, previous generations post, or, or after the Berlin Wall collapsed. Mm -hmm. I think that generation that witnessed, witnessed Berlin War, uh, values of human rights, of uh, freedom, of democratic freedoms, for those generations, they, they had different meaning a bit comparing to younger generations across many different spaces. So th I think here in Belarus, similar to its neighbors, to European, other European states, younger people are interested in different issues. They're interested in equality, mm -hmm. gender equality, mm -hmm. in issues of ecology, this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. However, unfortunately, the state also wants to control these areas as well. And it does not give voice to those young people in these areas as well, which perhaps frustrates them and this is perhaps one of the ways how those young people can get into politics and get, get politically involved. That's how we see it. Yeah, and so I'm sure that they're kind of one of the only spaces where politics is really going on among the youth is social media. Is, is there kind of a thriving um, Bel Belarusian kind of uh, civic activism, if, even if it's on the internet, on social media? Yeah, that seems to be the only way how a civic or political activist can actually address their audience using social media because traditional media like TV, which is still hu hugely important in Belarus, is social media is the only way to address people because TV and other mainstream media are controlled by the state totally. Mm -hmm. So what the people do and they just use social media mostly. And fortunately, fortunately, compared to Russia, for instance, and even to Ukraine, where more, used to be most popular social media contacts or VK is blocked. Nothing like that is happening in Belarus. Mm -hmm. Almost no political websites are blocked in Belarus. We are much more liberal, apparently, mm -hmm. uh, in this respect compared to Russia or oh. other CIC, uh, CIS countries. Are there any other forms of expressing dissent other than social media? I remember a lecture given by uh, Dr. Kirill Abramov, he's in the LBJ school here, and mm -hmm. he discussed how in a lot of Eastern European countries, such as Bulgaria, um, state capture meant that a lot of the elite would buy media. And 
um, people would have to resort to other methods to express themselves. And one really prominent way was graffiti, actually. Mm. Put political slogan, like graffiti as a weapon to, you know, write political slogans and express alternative opinions. So is there any other similar kind of thing happening in Belarus? Well, well, graffiti used to be quite popular, I would Mm -hmm. say, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. This was a very very strong way to express yourself. These days I don't see much political graffitis across the town, but there were many, indeed. Um, social media, and then, oh, hard to say, well, I, it seems like, well, look, in Belarus, you can't have political protests, yeah? Mm-hmm. Normally, you should, you should ask permission to organize it, and normally permission refused, and then you go on the street, you get arrested, got into prison, and so on. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Very often happens. Uh, so publicly expressing yourself in the public area, it's very, very difficult. Very difficult. The largest process that takes uh, takes place right now in Belarus, it's the largest process movement that is currently active, is ecological movement. It's about ecology. It's about the building of very dirty factory in the southern region of the country. And if you look at the, for instance, Soviet Union history, the last Soviet Union, that's how the democratic movement started actually in Soviet Union. They started from ecological problem. You remember Chernobyl, 1986, and so on and so forth. That's how people have been activated. So I would say the only way to get politically and uh, to bring politi- uh, to bring politics in the public space these days is to attract people through less contentious questions and issues. Yeah, that's fascinating that on the one hand, it's it's a this liberal regime on the internet relative to at least other countries in the region, but you know, in the public sphere, it's still um, it's still tightly kind of controlled. And so I'm wondering how often, you know, how long that kind of dichotomy can persist. Where mm. on the one hand, there's this freedom in the internet, but it can never boil over into the actual kind of public well, administration. Uh, it seems like it seems like Lukashenko just started using social media, specifically Russian Telegram. So it seems like before he wasn't very much online, like Putin, I think. Uh-huh. Many people say that Putin doesn't really use computer. Yeah. It used to be case of Belarus uh, as well. So once those people are getting online, finally, once those people are getting online, it might be the case that they start trying to restrict it unfortunately yeah we don't we don't know when it happens it seems like most of people most of the regimes are moving that way that direction but i would say that political activism that's what i studied political activism they're very inventive they know how to adapt they know how to change they know how to be creative and once you stay creative once you stay open to new ways to express yourself new ways to use technologies you, you, you will be successful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know about as somebody who's spent a, a lot of time in Russia. I know about all kinds of Russian opposition figures, but who are media figures on like YouTube, for example. Whether it's uh, Dmitry Ivanov, who's Kamikaze, is this big blogger, a R- Russian language blogger. Are there any like Belarusian like equivalents to? These figures where they are, you know, big YouTube figures who are just on YouTube or just on Twitter or so on. And is there kind of a difference between media figures and kind of real political 
um, people with true political ambitions. Mm. Oh, well, that's uh, a very good observation. I think uh, even the figure of Navalny in Russia, uh, some people maybe don't see the much difference between Navalny vlogger and yeah. Navalny politician, yeah? Uh, in Belarus, you have several prominent political vloggers. Uh -huh. And interestingly, very interestingly, few of them are located exactly in that region that now is organized across this huge ecological protest. Mm. And those people are really in the center of this protest. So you see that those people who started as just those people who tell about local stories related to injustice and unfairness, police brutality, yeah. it turns out to be the potential leaders <laughs> of masses yeah. with their cameras. Yeah, that's fascinating. The, the other interesting thing about Belarus is I know that in in Russia, but also here, you know, there's a lot of also perceptions of that a lot of the positive things of Soviet life have been preserved. And we hear about how, you know, the streets are very clean in Minsk. I've never been to Minsk, so I don't know if the Minsk is really this like a very gorgeous, beautiful, clean city. But yeah, I was wondering if you could just say something about how, you know, the, the extent to which um, pieces of elements or Soviet light have been preserved in Belarus and the extent to which people really do kind of sincerely like that and enjoy mm. it. Yeah, well, many people would suggest that actually what happened in Belarus since 1994, uh, uh, Lukashenko cut off this piece of piece of sort of uh, Soviet life that remained post-Soviet Union collapse, just cut it off as a piece and put in the in the fridge it, <laughs> and it, it now remains there for many, many years. For that same reason, perhaps you have the same head of state, the same kind of heads of opposition that been active since he has also been elected. So it's the same people, same kind of ways of living life, same way of organizing things, many things, same thing, same way of educating people, so on and so forth. So in a way, if you want to see Soviet Union, come to Minsk. That's the most preserved piece of Soviet life on this planet, I'm afraid. Mm. Or if you if you wish to see it, it should be very good for you. <laughs> and what is it like just living day-to-day -day life in Minsk or Belarus? Because just looking at, um, I I was really fascinated at, about Belarus at some point, and I you know like looked up a lot of images that you know photographers from like I don't know National Geographic took of the country, and there's this like heavy focus on. Um, of course, like the cleanliness of Minsk, the sort of like socialist yeah. utopian space that Stalin built, but also yeah. like the, the, the soldiers and military parades. Yeah. So is there like this, so being in Belarus, is there the sense of like calm and state control when you're there or? Is... Well, it depends who you are, yeah? If you, if you, if you're part of the elite, perhaps you feel a sub calm and safe. When I pass police, I never feel safe. Mm -hmm. I don't feel I don't feel very comfortable in these settings. Well, in, in Belarus, as we know now, that it's very much Soviet system. As you might remember, in Soviet Union, everyone was sort of guaranteed some kind of job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was, it could be low paid, you might not buy anything, but you're guaranteed to have work. Mm -hmm. Similar policy is pursued 
by the Belarusian state or been pursued until maybe very recently. It means that if you're a young person, there is a high chance that uh, upon graduation you find job, but that might be not the kind of job you're hoping to get and not kind of money you hope to earn, but you kind of almost guarantee to have something. Other, other question is whether you are successful or happy with that. And the other question you ask, how many people want to leave, demonstrates perhaps that people are not satisfied, but they are pretty sure that they're gonna gonna have some something to live on. Yeah, I'm I'm curious. What do you think is the best? You know, if I'm interested in what's going on in Belarus, where where where's the best kind of source for information about what's going on in Belarus? Is it something like Radio Svoboda, or is it? Is there some other, um, well, I mean, I guess we can say English language, but also even just are, is, is the best picture in, in some uh, in Belarusian language or is it in Russian language or, or what, what, what kind of sources do you trust to find stuff on what's going on in Belarus? Uh, well, sources. Is it just Facebook pages and yeah, people's yeah. media? What, I mean, yeah. people's social media, what they're saying? Is it kind of very word of mouth? Because, well, actually, I know that you asking people. Uh, what kind of books you can recommend yeah, for yourself yeah. in anticipation of yeah, this Yeah, you're question. one step ahead of us. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. The second, I, I just got to answer both because I think yeah, yeah. you you got no answer for the next question. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> I asked my Facebook friends ac uh, across and there are quite a lot of them and uh, across them you have academics and uh, writers and journalists and so on. What kind of sources you can recommend because I, I'm puzzled. And you know what? They are also puzzled. They don't know what to recommend because there is almost nothing been published in English about Belarus. Mm -hmm. No movies, no documentaries. Uh, I mean, political, social yeah. situation. Uh, no kind of recent books, unfortunately. Very sad. Uh, and so, as a member of the but, Belarusian diaspora, do you feel this kind of need that, okay. Oh, I'm, yeah, that's, that's I, my I agenda. Have, it's my job. I have to be the one yes. who. Absolutely, kind of, you know, I, I, I'm also happen to be the secretary of the of Belarusian library in London. Oh, quite yeah. unique. It's the largest uh, uh, library of Belarusian literature beyond Belarus. Yeah. And you know, we're getting people sending their books and we're getting some books in English about Belarus. I think uh, recently we got over the last three years, we got zero books that can focus on Belarus social social political situation. Uh, if you want to learn about Belarus, you should learn Belarusian and Russian, <laughs> preferably both. Uh -huh. And this, for that reason, this is one of my main agendas. Someone who is doing research, I used to be doing journalism a lot in Belarusian language mostly, but I realized that so few is known about the country. And uh, one of my um, main goals, my current occupations, is trying to tell the story of Belarus in English to to, to global audience, to people like you, yeah. curious and interested in this question. And I'm very happy that uh, you are asking those great questions. Mm -hmm. What is the sort of, um, I guess, have there been any studies done on the Belarusian diaspora and how? I guess obliged or engaged they feel with what's going on in the home country. Yeah, well, uh, interestingly, uh, there are two types of diaspora. Mm -hmm. Some people who, for some reason, immigrate, sometimes political. For instance, I think in the US, there are se several hundreds of people who 
got political refugee status coming from Belarus every year. So every year, several hundreds Belarusians got political refugee status in the United States. Mm -hmm. I don't see how is it possible to run because now, now, nowadays there are almost no political repressions. Yeah. Uh, and some of those people feel feel really huge need to engage. Mm -hmm. And this, this is great, but it's kind of minority. Uh, the majority, when they leave Belarus, if they want to engage with someone, they, they rather would engage with uh, people who people who are part of Russian or post-Soviet culture. Uh, interestingly, so it seems like people, many people who leave country, they don't feel themselves Belarusians. They live as post-Soviet guys or Russians, and that's it. The connection is cut off, and that's it. They're not joining any kind of movements, but there are there, there are there are strong uh, political organizations in the U.S. and Western Europe. Yeah, uh, adding to the question about what, how what uh, how to learn about Belarus. So, uh, in terms of media, there is something called Belarus Digest. It's a Belar uh, English English uh, English speaking website that publishes mm -hmm. at least a few stories every week about Belarus about mm -hmm. current affairs. Another way, if you are kind of a very curious reader, is to read policy re reports and recommendations. There are quite a lot of them in English. Mm -hmm. uh, policy reports, uh, UN reports, there is a special rapporteur mm -hmm. on human rights uh -huh. uh, of Belarus, reported uh, by the UN, for mm -hmm. instance. And there are other, many other reports on media, on politics, mm -hmm. but no, nothing, unfortunately, for kind of for larger audience, for, for more ordinary people right. who doesn't want to read all those crazy language of policy reports. The, the other topic I wanted to just briefly touch on that's kind of cropped up once again in Russia, and I don't, I'm not exactly sure with, you know, with, with which it's related, but there was this new talk about how well, oh, it's because it's related to Putin's succession. And so there was this theory that maybe Belarus and Russia would unify again and create the Sayuzna Gasudarstva, right? And that this was potentially going to happen as a way for then Putin to be, be president again because it's a new, it's a new government. Do you, do you think Belarus, I mean, how do, what do you Belarus, uh, Belarusian people think about a possible union with Russia? Um, would, would they would they support it and do you expect it that something like that to happen yeah uh actually this uh, this recent talks about possible unification of belarus and russian putin sort of getting a new job or as the head of the this this union state this is actually the reason i came to to this university to talk tomorrow about oh, yeah. uh, and very briefly i just say the result of what they're going to talk uh, I try to understand where those talks are coming from, what those rumors are coming from, very much rumors, kind of, I would say even misinformation. Uh -huh. This is mostly coming from one specific branch of Kremlin, within Kremlin, called uh -huh. Siloviki. Siloviki yeah. the, this is the source uh -huh. of this rumor. So it's not a unified policy that is now pursued by the Kremlin by default. It's rather perhaps one of the options or even one of the uh, ways of manipulate the political situation in Belarus and Russia. Uh, and it comes to whether Belarusian citizens would support or not, 
well, they would support everything, I'm afraid, that is supported by the regime, right? Mm -hmm. Because again, there are no elections, no way to organize free and fair elections, and also uh, no way of knowing people's opinion on that matter. For the reason, because again, if people ask political questions, they tend to answer something they might not think uh, about, but believe is more appropriate to us. Mm -hmm. And so do you think that Lukashenko would necessarily be opposed to that idea? You know, he, I mean, it's just so funny to me. On the one hand, he's not necessarily a Belarusian nationalist, so it seems that on the one hand, he would be kind of not necessarily opposed to that arrangement. What do you think? Uh, I think that the man and the, perhaps the only value Lukashenko is his power, his position, and I don't see how he can leave that position. Mm -hmm. uh, and that perhaps his main motivation to avoid any kind of that sort of deal with Putin that would reduce his power significantly. He might sell some portion of independence uh, for economic stability, uh, but that's what he was doing for all his 25 years in power. So it seems like he's, he's definitely not nationalist, but his desire to stay in power at the moment something that something that ensures that perhaps Belarus will, will remain independent. Though I should also say that even this talk about sort of Belarus, Belarus being taken by Russia, it is the, the direct result of his rule, direct result of his policies. And he's the most responsible, man responsible person for this sort of situation. Considering that there are even rumors in the first place, I think that's kind of telling um, about the really tight relationship that Belarus and Russia have. And I know that they, there's a kind of open border agreement between the two countries where Belarus, Belarusians can go to Russia indefinitely. So what's the kind of, I guess, relationship like what do Bel what kind of relationship do ordinary Belarusian citizens have with Russia? Do a lot of them end up working in Russia or even like moving there? Yeah, according to some estimates, about half a million Belarusian citizens uh, work in Russia currently. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is because it's uh, they don't need any work permission. It's very easy to mm -hmm. get a job. It's almost the same as uh, the arrangement that exists within the EU countries of free movement of people. Mm -hmm. Are there even stronger bonds? Do they go there to be educated as well? Some people, not many actually, not that many. No. And so like, uh, what what other ways do people, I guess, use this agreement to... Oh. Yeah, you see, uh, actually these days, the... Okay, who are those people who are mostly going to work in Russia? This is mostly less skilled professionals. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, this type of people these days are now working uh, and looking not east but west north to Lithuania and Poland that are one of the fastest growing economies in the European Union. Mm -hmm. For that same reason they need more workers so maybe less skilled positions. And apparently the population of workers from Belarus is growing rapidly in these two countries. So it seems like we don't know the balance is shifting. Mm -hmm. People started sort of moving from these Russian arrangements to other arrangements and how, how else they use it. 
well, the main way how people are how people relate to Russia is media. Russian media, mainstream media, TV, uh, TV, TV most, TV exclusion. Russian mainstream media dominate Belarusian media landscape. Absolutely, about fifty percent of prime time, all prime time TV is made in Russia, including news. And perhaps if you are aware how Russian news look like <laughs> and how it's persuasive yeah. in relation to some people, yeah, you can imagine what those people think of Belarusian independence, mm-hmm. about Ukraine war, about so on and so forth. So unfortunately, this is one. Of, I think this key issue, key issue that is not addressed by the region, because maybe they're afraid to cut off Russian civil opportunity. Just afraid. Mm-hmm. The other topic that I know Melina was also very interested in is your recent work on uh, Russian rap. And we were looking at your paper and it appears that you read the comments, like the YouTube comments on uh, on these videos. And we were talking about how, you know, just, um, yeah, there's even words in Russian to describe all these arguments um, that take place um, under YouTube videos. Kind of how did you get the idea for, for this piece and was it was it fun to go and read all these comments under the youtube videos oh it was a lot of fun <laughs> obviously i believe anyone who ever read those comments yeah. <laughs> i think that's it um it's it's not just my piece it's also a piece by my colleague from us of westminster anastasia denisova uh, we just had an idea uh, to understand what is viral culture and how video on YouTube can become viral. What is virality, this kind of thing. And we ended up indeed reading those comments, trying to understand what people think of those political videos, because we were looking at rap music that features some sort of political issues and political stories from pro-Kremlin side and also from sort of more independent view of reality and society as well. And we found out, interestingly, that people who who at least respond, communicate after after watching those rap music videos, they stayed very much critical, critical in relation to the Russian state. There, there was one video in our sample called, I, I believe, I, I'm not sure the exact, the exact name, it's something like, my best friend is President Putin. Yes, of course. By Timothy, who, yes. is, who is one very of the- Very famous song, and the, yeah. and the music video is okay. over the top. Yeah. Very well, yeah, that, we should, well, that's why I selected on the top, yeah. And we looked at what people are saying, okay, how they respond. It was the only video in our sample that received more negative likes than positive likes, which is very unusual for YouTube because mm-hmm. mostly, all, almost all videos been ever uploaded on YouTube received more positive likes than negative. Mm-hmm was the only one that received more negative and comments were also similar, quite negative in relation to the singer and the, the, the whole the whole thing he was he was talking about. Mm-hmm. We are co- quite confident that uh, those people who were commenting there, they were real people. Yeah. Some of the videos we're looking at been produced 2012, mm-hmm. 2013. It was a bit early, early, bit early yeah. times, yeah. There were some people from Ukraine 
commenting on the videos. <laughs> and it, it's, it's not a matter, yeah? And then they were critical of Russian state for other reasons uh -huh, uh -huh. than uh, ordinary Russian citizens. Uh, yeah, but uh, but it's it's a different matter, I think. How does one uh, analyze YouTube comments in a scholarly way, I guess? Because this is such an informal space. But mm -hmm. I guess that, that, that also makes it important to look at and quantify um, hostility and other kinds of... Yeah, things. yeah. We had to be inventive. Mm -hmm. So we collected a lot of, we collected all the comments and there were thousands and thousands in our database and we just selected most popular. Uh, and then we uh, analyzed what kind of words have been used. So if you do it in Russian language, it's a bit more tricky because there are not so many databases and instruments and tools. Then you just end up essentially looking at the most common expressions and also essentially reading them. Well, this has been so fascinating for us and I've <laughs> learned a lot about Belarus and I feel like I have a much better perception now of kind of how Belarusian people um, are perceiving things that's going on. And so we wanted to thank you for coming on. And if you're ever back in Austin, please uh, reach out. We would love to have you back on. My pleasure. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.